£1.92 Committee podcast, where a group of disenfranchised millennial snowflakes give their semi-informed opinions on the major issues shaping the political discourse in the UK today, and those that matter most to us personally. My name is Al McNair, and joining me on today's podcast are Aaron Matthews and George Beard. Evening, gents. All right. Hello. In each episode, we dive into the various topics dominating the UK political agenda, try to distinguish fact from fantasy, and give our take on the direction our country is heading in. On the podcast this week, we celebrate the second not Brexit day in less than a month as the EU27 grant us an extension. Can we expect the course to change or more of the same from Parliament? As Julian Assange slides from embassy to custody, we break through the fallout. Nigel Farage this week launched the Brexit party live on the BBC. How seriously should we take his new party and to what extent have the media facilitated the efficacy of his brand of politics? And later, with Brexit set to stay on the infotainment news cycle, we discuss whether apathy will eventually outweigh activism. So gents, another big week. We've been granted a brick extension. Another one. Yeah, another one. In the wee hours of Thursday morning, not going to lie, I was asleep. Uh, if memory <laughs> serves me, it was about well, somewhere between 1 and 2am, I think. Uh, we had that press conference from Brussels uh, announcing that we were given an extension until the 31st of October. The EU, clearly as they would, had told us to use this time wisely, and Parliament has just announced an Easter recess. So, <laughs> where does this leave us? That's a that's a big question. We don't mess around with the £1.92 podcast. No, exactly. Asking the cutting questions early on, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it, it's it's I think it you know it's it's obviously to be welcomed the Brexit's been delayed again which I think puts puts the whole kind of concept of whether it's actually going to happen back into question really. You know, kicking the can down the road I think, you know, is is a pol- is a it's a policy that sort of Theresa May has been her only policy really and I think this this could be her could be her undoing really. But I think yeah, I think you know it's it's positive it does mean that European elections are now sort of very likely going to happen by, by all accounts. So it's really an, an, a chance for the people to give their feedback on how things have been getting on, really, which I think <laughs> might throw up some interesting results. It will. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to have a situation, probably before or after this happens, of so much riding up, there being so much attention on these EU elections. And yeah. Do we feel as though it's going to act almost like a barometer uh, for for the sort of the feeling of the nation? I'd like to think so. I am already concerned, and I think it's a point that we'll come to a little later on with Mm -hmm. the launch of Nige's new new party. That I know we we said last week, uh, and I sort of diminished the impact of the fact that the Remain vote might well be splintered because it's proportionally representative. And I, I stand by those comments. I think if you get a lot of people voting for Remain parties, you will get a lot of Remain parties in. But I am concerned that actually the Leave side has a focal point. It has one party because UKIP is in just dire state, really. And, and frankly, and, and I, I, I doubt most everyday men you meet on the street could probably name who the current leader is. I mean, they've been in political obscurity since Nigel left. I should really stop 
personifying him and referring to him on his first name because I loathe him. <laughs> <laughs> we could just refer to him as he who shall not be named. Yeah, I know. Words of effect. We, we I, I'm, I, I like that. I think we should, we should employ that as a rule going forward. <laughs> Boldenage. <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's a focal point, and I am concerned about that, and I also think they've launched quite effectively, much more effectively, I think, than the independent group which again we come back to the point they weren't a party when they when they jumped off the marks but by contrast with the independent group i think you've also got a bit bit of a crisis of identity in that they've rebranded as change uk but actually lots of people still refer to them as the independent group and and there was an interview with anna subri and ian dale on lbc earlier and and ian was referring to uh, the group as the independent group and there was no corrections forthcoming and there's also the wider question of aside from europe what do they stand for uh which i think there's a lot of unity they can find there and it doesn't have to be the case that just because the group is made up of former Labour and Conservative MPs. They have to be wildly disparate in all of their views. You know, the Conservative Party and the Labour Party exist with people in it who have very different views on different subjects. And, OK, admittedly, that might be what's causing the fracture right now. So in the context of that extension, where did those kind of um, fractions or those different disparate parts of each party leave us in terms of the next step, the next, what is it, six months, just just over six months between now and our new leave date, if that isn't again kicked further down the road, where do you see those divisions leading? Uh, well, leading the course. I mean, I'm fundamentally pessimistic because I just don't think there's any. That with six months, it's an arbitrary length extension to accommodate the fact that Macron is playing domestic politics and wants to look like a strong man in France, and that's the reason why it's not as long as the EU was initially touting. But then you've got currently Easter recess. Then you'll have August, where all the politicians are on holiday again. Then you have the party conference season. I, It feels like six months down the road, but actually, I don't think there's a lot of time to get things done, so I don't know how far things will move. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I think if the Tory party vote collapses, both in the local and European elections, there's a chance that a critical mass of cabinet members may resign. And effectively bring down Theresa May, which effectively would, again, trigger a uh, a Tory leadership contest. Because I think if enough cabinet members resign, then nobody would want to replace them because the kind of the game's up in a sense, which, again, is another thing to factor into the extension. It doesn't actually solve, you know, the process of trying to achieve a compromise sort of by reaching across the aisle with Labour. But the, you know, the Tory party vote could, could indeed collapse, I think, and that could produce a whole another set of potential um, outcomes um, post 22nd of May. Well, they've dropped nine points, I think, in the polls in the last month, haven't they? Something like that, which is, I mean, polls yeah. as polls and take them all with a bit of a pinch of salt, but that's a pretty dramatic drop. That's yeah, a fairly seismic shift. And also a change, in, a change in leader doesn't change the parliamentary arithmetic, even if it happened. And also I think no. actually in the context of Brexit and the way the tide is sort of turning at the moment, actually a change of leader and the likely leader or type of leader they would get would possibly, from our perspective, make things an awful lot worse. And I share your pessimism, unfortunately, Aaron, in terms of I don't really see anything changing. I think she'll probably do her best to bring the deal back again and again and just try and bludgeon everyone with it. Was she not trying to bring it back again before the 22nd of May? I think that was suggested in on Mar this morning, that that, that, that would happen. Yeah. 
so that we wouldn't actually need European elections in theory. Although, I, again, I think the time's running out. I think it's almost a certain. Thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't see it happening. And and I, I, I mean, even so, even if the elections, I mean, I expect the elections to happen, but. I think the critical point about the extension is that it's shown that Brexit no longer has to happen on a set date and it has removed this kind of magic around this one set date where everything will be, where all of your wishes will come true. Uh, if it's been moved once, it can move again. And this general attitude, which we'll come to talk about a little bit later, where people are kind of bored of it and fatigued is only going to continue, especially if things don't substantively change. And I don't see a reason why they would change. I don't see, with the current talks that are still ongoing between Conservatives and, and Labour, some magical solution uh, arising, principally because for Jeremy Corbyn, what interest does it serve the Labour Party to come to an end to this process? The longer the process goes on, the more the Conservative Party destroys itself. There is absolutely no political capital in Labour working with the Conservatives to come to a magical consensus. So it will just bat everything back. And the Lib Dems will because they're a main party, and the SNP will because they're a main party, and the Independent Group will because they're a main party. And in those circumstances, you're very unlikely to find that she gets the majority across the line with the rebels in her party. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a solid point. Not much has changed. I think it's, it's the con- the conclusion. How depressing! Which, yeah, <laughs> it's, it, it's depressing. Um, is you know we have avoided Brexit by another few months at least. They've said it's that's the kind of maximum extension. But although we could apply for another extension, but equally, if the deal were to be passed, then it could be brought forward. But again, I don't see that happening. I still think, you know, what what do we think is the most likely outcome? My view is that we will have to get another extension on top. Yep, I agree. I, I call bluff on anyone who says they, they won't extend beyond October. Because like I, I said last week that patience might run out, but it needs to go on a lot longer for patience to run out. I think there is a potential flashpoint next year because the EU sets its budget for the next seven years. And they may well say we are not going to extend to allow you to be involved in that decision-making process whilst you may then leave. And they'll need to have an idea of whether they're going to get that. Yes. So so that, that, that may well, and I think that's next March time, that may well provide a more credible point where people start to say, no, right, this has got to come to an end one way or the other. But October, no, I, I can... I, in fact, I would put probably money on it that it... it, it it will, will will extend beyond October. Because the other thing about this arbitrary six months extension, which the, the EU granted to appease Macron, it, it doesn't really give time for anything. It doesn't give time for another referendum with the legislation and, and, and bearing in mind that the, the other interruptions that are already set out. It's very unlikely that that would happen in that time frame. It's also quite unlikely that a general election would happen for the same reason. So it, nothing substantive is likely to change in that six months. No. MPs, I think, are ter- terrified by a general election. Because kind of like the golf this afternoon, you wouldn't know how to call it. No, absolutely. Until the day. I think another extension would mean, again, could extend things, but again, by having another extension, because uh, Theresa May would, that year of safety she secured by winning the lead, uh, sort of vote of no confidence in the party just before Christmas would be up therefore bringing in a new leader who clearly will not be happy will be voted in on a mandate from the membership precisely because of you know the membership won't be happy with the deal 
that she's uh, the withdrawal agreement that she's secured. So it's likely to prompt a different sort of Brexit, and it will be the case of the new leader going back to the EU, trying to open the withdrawal agreement to get sort of negotiate further and saying, "Look, I'm a new leader. We need to kind of almost perform a reset on this." And I don't think that will go terribly well sort of with the EU. So again, there's no end in sight on that respect either. Which I think, on the long, long game, uh, playing the long game, I would say that you know that should benefit the Remain side because then it becomes like, as Aaron says, you know, a, 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 enough time has lapsed. You kind of, well, you're almost approaching four years till the ref, since the referendum vote, sort of next summer. Well, that's to kind of base the major UK policy on a vote that happened four years ago. Is that valid? It's not valid now. You've got four. You've got you've got four years of uh, voters uh, who weren't able to vote on on you know at the referendum who are now yeah. eligible to vote, and equally four years of people who have uh, died. So you know it does kind of qu- put, puts into question. You could question it now, but you could you know the, the argument only gets stronger as time goes on. Yeah, agreed. And I think regardless of you know the demographics changing, it's also just the sheer amount of you know the the lies that were told finally being exposed and the wheels oh, yeah. slowly falling off the cart of very prominent uh, vocal Brexit supporters throwing in the towel, particularly last week. I think for me, one of the biggest ones was Nick Ferrari, yeah, um, who can be very, I mean, brilliant on some things, but also incredibly cantankerous on particularly Brexit issues. And he virtually said, you know, it's not going to happen. We can't. What we thought it was going to be is is undeliverable. From the perspective of again her her deal, um, in terms of the the leave date, and you said about the referendum legislation, if she could get through her deal, or rather, let me reword that. We do you think she'll ever put her deal eventually to Parliament, contingent on a second referendum on a people's vote? Will that ever happen? Do you think that'll ever come to the I think floor? I think it could I think it it's could like a Hail happen. Mary to get the deal over the line. I don't think Parliament would vote for it to happen. Well, eh, no, they they might vote for it that way. I think Labour might. Um, yeah, yeah, they 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 might vote for it that way. The main reason, well, a secondary reason why I think it might happen, aside from the politics, is she's going to run out of different ways to bring this deal back so that the Speaker doesn't block it. Because last time she was only able to bring it back because she removed the political declaration, which was pointless. Really, because you've—I mean, you've—you've you've got to agree them both as a package, but that was how she managed to get it before the Commons. She is going to run out of different ways to do that. Yeah, no, I think if an agreement came between, you know, the heads at the Tory uh, and later leaderships, that um, confirmatory vote on her deal was the compromise that would be seen as a win for Corbyn I think although it's a compromise between the two parties, Corbyn—that's—that's—that's that's, that's ammunition Corbyn's got at the next general election that he stood down the government and they backed down from you know from their kind of crazy demands so i think i think that you know i think i could see corbyn i think that is the compromise that labor are trying to agree in the long term once theresa may's other options which are diminishing um run out altogether i guess my theory as best possible it is on the labor long game is you diminish tory support as so far as possible by letting Brexit drag on and on and on and the Tory party destroy itself. 
you have a referendum on some form of Brexit, you campaign for Remain, you win, you force a vote of no confidence in May or the Tories at that point because they've lost and they'll campaign to leave and you get yourself a general election. Yeah. So on Thursday morning, the world woke up to the story that Julian Assange, the highly controversial whistleblower, founder of WikiLeaks, um, well, his political asylum at the Ecuadorian embassy had been revoked and he was taken away by the Metropolitan Police. Um, There's been obviously a huge amount of fallout uh, across the political spectrum, some very interesting reactions. We'll delve into those a little bit further. Uh, But from a purely legal point of view, a very objective stance on what has gone on, I'd be really interested to hear your take, Aaron, on, let's call it the legal pickle that Julian finds (laughs) himself in. (laughs) Pickle is one word for it. I mean, (laughs) I, I have very little sympathy for a man who has used diplomatic privileges accorded to an embassy to hide from due process for nearly a decade in what I see is quite a deliberate attempt to outmaneuver the fact that Sweden has a statute of limitations on uh, its criminal law. And the rape allegation, uh, which is the one remaining one that can be brought in Sweden, he was accused of sexual assault and rape uh, back in 2010. Uh, Of those accusations, the rape one is, is the only one that's left to be able to be brought legally in Sweden. But basically it might be worth just running kind of through the chronology of what happened because we are now talking about a nine-year history of this ludicrous charade. <laughs> so in August 2010 he's accused of sexual assault and rape whilst he's in Sweden and the Swedish police commence their investigation and he is subjected to an interview. He is then asked to attend a further interrogation quote-unquote. That part of the Swedish charging process is quite far down the line. It is sort of a final kind of accumulation of witness evidence, expert evidence. Um, He's subjected to quite intense scrutiny with a view to charging him. In the UK, he would have already been charged with a crime at that point. And that is a comment that's made by the High Court in this country. So we're not talking about someone who, a, a process where they were just kind of throwing accusations that didn't have much foundation it's it's clearly got quite far down the line of the burden of proof in order for it to have got to that stage at the point that he's asked to have this interrogation he comes back to the uk i don't think it's clear whether he does that as a response to that request or whether that request is is made coincidentally so sweden then gets a warrant for his arrest because he's left the country and that is appealed by Assange's lawyers. It's subject to the scrutiny of the Swedish courts. That he loses. They then get a European arrest warrant, and we'll neatly tie that back into Brexit, because that is a process that makes it easier to extradite people from other EU member states. So that gets issued in, in, in Sweden. Assange challenges that in, in England. He challenges it at the Magistrates Court. He challenges it at the High Court. He challenges it at the Supreme Court. It is upheld at every level. So it is subject to the most intense level of judicial scrutiny that you can imagine. And it is upheld at every level. And 
that is the point where he then decides, I've run out of legal avenues to challenge this. I'm going to go hide in the Ecuadorian embassy for seven years. And I have no sympathy because it, if you look at the facts pretty objectively, it seems to me that he has run out of legal avenues to challenge this decision, to bring him in for interrogation, which may or may not subject to him to, to being charged. And that is not the forum that you challenge these decisions. We're not talking about Banana Republic here. We're talking about a European Union member state. We're talking about Sweden. And that country has protections for people accused of crime under the European Convention of Human Rights. So we're not talking about someone that's just going to subject him to no due process. There is a due process to follow. And therefore, the arguments that you're making about the fact that the accusations are false, they're, uh, that the process that has gone through has been somehow flawed, those are arguments that you can quite legitimately make, but the forum for doing them is the Swedish legal system when you're defending yourself. It isn't to hide in the Ecuadorian embassy and gain online support, this online campaign. It's not the court of public opinion. It's not a kangaroo court. It needs to be done through the proper channels. So I have very little sympathy for him. And I think following the fact that he's been pulled out, there's there's currently two competing extradition requests over him. And the thing that really should be done is he should be extradited back to Sweden because the charges, albeit that they were dropped whilst and, and put on a hold whilst he was in the embassy, the minute he was arrested they have been revived. So Sweden will ask for him to be extradited, and I think he should be. Do you think the, the US will try and muscle their way in and claim either a more lawful or a more... What word am I trying to use here? They have a stronger case for extraditing him rather yes. than Swedes doing so. Yes. And, and, how, I, and how do you see that playing out? Um, I think I think they already have, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they've already made an extradition request. Um, I mean, from a purely legal perspective... My understanding is if there's two competing extradition requests, it, it basically falls to be a decision of the Home Secretary. So, what is Sajid Javid thinking? Um, basically, there's a number of grounds which, if there are two competing re- extradition requests, there's a number of grounds under which the Home Secretary decides which one should be heard first. And that includes the seriousness of the offences concerned, the location of the offence, the date so sort of first come first served kind of thing and whether the person is accused of its commission has been unlawfully at large after conviction um i mean in, in respect of all of those together if it was me making the decision sweden has a stronger claim because they came first i'm not saying that the charges accused of in the us are not serious but rape is pretty much as serious an accusation as you can get yeah but it's quite a broad level of discretion that Sajid Javid has, and politics will undoubtedly come into his thinking whether they should do or not. Um, but Assange will have a right to appeal that. Should should, and I suspect if he gets, if if Javid extradites him to the US, uh, it, I would expect Assange to appeal that. I think there's an interesting point here. You may have seen Hillary Clinton um, uh, a couple of days ago said that. Uh, Julian Assange might be the only foreigner that Trump welcomes into the country <laughs> for, you know, due, sort of, for, sort of him being sort of submitted to due process. It's an interesting one because WikiLeaks was caught up in Hillary Clinton's hacked emails. 
in the uh, 2016 US general election. They, WikiLeaks published a series of hacked emails from Clinton's campaign team on its website. This is while uh, Assange was in the Ecuadorian embassy. If that's the case, and given the Mueller investigation, which the report hasn't been made public yet, and um, Trump's basically, you know, there's been a lot lots of accusations made of his links to um, Russian stakeholders, shall we say, within the uh, 2016 election. Would this, by Assange going back to the US, would that make things uncomfortable for Trump because it may revive that story or give more oxygen to that story um, of the uh, hacked emails in the 2016 general election and any possible collusion that may or may not have happened. I think this is this is more of a political point for Trump. I think I think Assange's Assange's original kind of uh, charges in the states what was to do with his uh, involvement with, with with Chelsea Manning and um, leaking intelligence data. I think it was way back in 2010 or around that time. Yeah. But I guess this is more of a political point for Trump and you know any potential outcomes of you know, what might happen by give it, giving oxygen to, the, to the, the hacked emails saga that happened during the 2016 election. You know, it's, it's something that might be going through certain people's mind when deciding whether he's, he's extradited back to uh, back to the US. Yeah, it may well do. I think um, there's been an awful lot of oxygen given to that point anyway, though, in, in the sense yeah. that that's really been the only thing everyone's been talking about for three years. But the the reaction to that has generally been, well, Mueller's investigating, let's wait for the report. So actually, I think I still think the bigger thing is public disclosure of the full Mueller report, and that should provide more answers there, because he'll just do, I mean, Trump will just do what he does, won't he? He'll just make things up on the spot as he goes along and lie and... and, and yeah, no, sure. I mean, I, I, yeah, I was, I was just, just speculating, really, that, that that may be a reason. You know, I'm, I'm sure um, the Home Secretary will be... Um, communicating through channels, let's say, to 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 help guide his decision. You cynic. <laughs> uh, I, I I'm I I'm absolutely fascinated by the um, political oxygen that the Labour Party is giving to uh, the whole case. I I think it's I th- I think from a legal point of view, I think it's probably fascinating. Not as a legal expert, I think it, but it, it is extraordinary. But it's it's something that you, I think typically would not be taken by the scruff of its neck in a political sense, especially when something like Brexit's going on. I, th- I just think it's uh, Corbyn's fascination with the whole affair. I don't know. I, I think it's slightly worrying. And I think this almost I wouldn't call it moral equivalency, but trying to place these acts, these crimes, these alleged crimes, yeah. on a moral spectrum. Yeah, and. To basically turning a blind eye to incredibly serious sexual assault allegations. Yes. Yeah. I mean, did we listen to or read the transcript from the... I mean, fuck me. John Humphrey's actually doing his job and properly you know, interrogating someone he's interviewing on the Today programme but with Diane Abbott and asking repeatedly about the rape charges to which her, her response was on, on three occasions... These charges were never brought. Yes, but the, but the, uh, well, I, I mean, the process I've described is is shows the level of intellectual dishonesty in that statement. And I, I mean, if you if you 
want to go into the nitty gritty of of it, the the allegation is essentially that he had sex with someone whilst she was asleep. I mean, obviously, you know, rape. No one's under any kind of misunderstanding as to how serious and stuff. But if you, if you read the actual extent of them, it it kind of brings it home. And moreover, this isn't something that's been dismissed on a whim. He was due to go through the final late-stage procedure in Sweden prior to being charged with a com- criminal offence. He wouldn't necessarily have been charged, but there is he, he'd already been interviewed. There was cause to bring him back and go further through the process. And instead of subjecting himself to interrogation, like someone who has nothing to hide, you would expect to do, he hides an embassy for seven years. So it is. It's, it's, it's astonishing how flippantly that's dismissed. Yeah, like it, it kind of it undermines the whole rule of law, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. 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 No, I mean that's it. And yeah, you know, it's just the leader of the opposition who is casting doubt over fair-minded kind of judicial process. Yes. Which, which I think is 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 is, is striking and, and and quite sad. And it sets a worrying precedent and I think is further I, I don't know I just felt reading those comments hearing those those comments it was almost like the the whole ideology it does go deeper it does go further than anything around Brexit now it's taking hold of all aspects of that party yes and I'm sorry to lower the tone but I have to give a special mention to to Michael Glasper I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly who for me came up with the best tweet about this entire thing I mean, the state, by the way, of Julian Assange as he came out of the embassy, dishevelled, long beard, and he simply says, Julian Assange is 47. <laughs> this is what wanking in a cupboard for seven years does to a man. <laughs> and I think it's probably best to leave that one there. What a note to end on. <laughs> All right, so that brings us towards the end of the week. And on Friday, in the prime mid-morning slot, Nigel Farage launched his new Brexit party live on the BBC, announcing Annunziata Rees-Mogg as their first standing candidate. Is that how you say it? I definitely definitely didn't know that. (laughs) Annunziata. (laughs) And out on a pasture in the sunlit uplands, irony (laughs) does. Should we be taking this seriously? I think sadly, yes. I it's a single issue party that's obviously been created, not too dissimilar to UKIP. I think they will win votes. And I think the inflammatory language and well, quite frankly, disgraceful language Farage has opted to use, I'm very depressed to say will resonate with some people, which I think is is a tragedy in itself. But, you know, he is I, I hate the man, but he is charismatic. He has not been politically that successful, but the European elections favour him. He's been an MEP for 20 years or so, and because it's more proportion, proportional representation than, a, than compared to the general election, the Brexit party stands to um, pick up some seats, and I wouldn't be surprised if they did. Will, be, will they be the biggest party? I would heavily cast doubt over that, and God hope that they're not. 
Um, but yeah, I think you know it was something that we're all we all expected. But actually, you know, the only thing, the only kind of thing I'm thinking through at the moment is that you know the Conservatives are a Brexit-leaning party. Labour is uh, is, a, is is effectively a Brexit of some sort leaning party so is UKIP and now here's the Brexit party so that's that kind of end of the spectrum it is is well catered for but if we're going to see a collapse in the conservative vote which I think could could happen then the Brexit party are going to take some of the, those votes so unfortunately I think they are a, 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 a an entity that needs to sort of be watched closely because the, the, the different rules apply to that to that sort of party you know, if they were to put up some people uh, as candidates who weren't really properly vetted and who turned out to be a bit on the extreme or crazy side, I don't think many people would bat an eyelid. If the independent group or Change UK did that, then people would be in uproar uh, from that side saying, well, you know, you know if, if you had a false start here, whereas I think the Brexit party could have false starts and they could ride through it. It's almost that kind of Trump-like effect that the shit doesn't stick on them which I think is worrying. Yeah, those, those are my thoughts kind of at that this early stage. I think you talk, you talk about the language he, he was using. I mean, the principal quote... that they, Striking the fear of God yeah, into our Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. They deserve nothing less after the way they treated us over this betrayal. I mean, the problem with Farage is and his talent is to make that kind of thing, which is dangerous... It's it's incendiary. It weaponizes people against against the institutions of 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 the state. But he does it in a very effective way, where it doesn't sound extreme. It for that for whatever reason he does it in a kind of man about town way, where people listen to it and go, yeah, that makes that makes sense. And I I I do think he's very very good at what he does. I I and you know. Credit where credit is due. I have no love for the man whatsoever, but he is very good at that. And that makes him dangerous because this kind of extremism is an incremental shift. It doesn't happen by people coming out and, and you know, suddenly rounding up people from ethnic minorities or something like that. It's, it's incremental shifts towards an environment where you can start to do that kind of thing. And I, I look at the states we're in now versus we're in in 2015 and think we have shifted and you know i think i think we acknowledge this but actually what happens along the way is more normalization you know this kind of language is now normal the outrage that you got it's a slow build yeah and the the outrage that you got i I always i compare it to the um you know the hostile environment policy and the those anti-immigration vans that went around that said go home um, anti-illegal immigrant they were ta- they were targeted towards they they caused absolute widespread condemnation i think that was 2014 i might be wrong then yeah it was, it was when may was home secretary yeah so. I, mean, I fear that you did the same thing again now you you wouldn't get the same level of outrage racism in particular and I'm not using these as uh, to say um Nigel Farage is, is a racist even though i think there is an argument to make that he could be, but just to kind of 
exemplify how the discourse has changed. Uh, I think it was it was on Frankie Ball's New World Order the other week, and I can't remember the name of the panelist. She said, you know, that there seems to be a case with someone who is an anti-racism campaigner. They go on an interview. They have to be put up against someone who is against that idea like racism is any kind of legitimate viewpoint that should be considered and that again is not where we were five years ago i don't think and i do worry that farage is very very good at affecting that change and that that is ultimately what he is his aim is whether you believe in some kind of cynical backing of Putin or whatever, uh, you know, that is what he's agitating for. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, this is this Brexit party vehicle is a way for him to, I mean, he gets enough airtime already, but for him to continue getting airtime, being this new leader, I think, you know, it's only been a few years since Joe Cox's murder and the language he uses helps to incite that kind of anger towards what he calls the establishment, but actually are public servants. They are public servants there to represent the views of the people. Now, Brexit, the vote on the referendum has been proven over the last few years that it wasn't conclusive. It's still a debate. We're still debating it. MPs are still debating it on either side because the country is divided and Parliament is divided. So actually, it's not surprising. I think they're doing a quite a good job in some respects, the MPs, because they are reflecting the divided nature of the country. And if you're going to get division, sometimes that kind of does lead to stalemate and you're not able to get a majority. So that shouldn't. That doesn't mean we're in a constitutional crisis. That just means that you know, we need time to sort this out. And trying to force, you know, decision by um, inciting this sort of language is not helpful when at a time we need to make sure that we're concentrating on the facts of and merits of each side of the debate. Because Farage is not keen on facts. He's not keen on evidence. He's very keen on emotion, fear and division, which are not going to help solve anything, any of the big issues that we're facing as a country today. So I have, uh, I am, I am concerned, and I hope he does very badly. And um, that's a very uh, polite yeah. way to put it. George. <laughs> I, I, I hope he does really, really badly. Yeah, I, I hope, I hope, Yeah, I hope he loses his deposit. Um, <laughs> So it's the most middle class inside I've heard. Yes, I, I think going back to to Aaron's point about this uh, this language, this rhetoric being almost normalised, I think was really concerning. Um, is in and this is a common theme on this podcast in the BBC's mission to not be biased, giving that again false equivalency. This kind of stuff's given a platform every day. And it's almost like, you know, with bells and whistles on, on Friday morning, this um, this news conference where the, the party was being launched. And it's going to sound like a strange analogy uh, with how populism and fascism eventually becomes a big issue. When you cook frogs, yeah, you do not throw them into boiling water. Yes. And for me, it's the kind of same thing. You kind of gradually just get people used to maybe one shocking thing every now and then, but just slowly, slowly, slowly that kind of hateful language infiltrates everyday life we become numb we become immune to it it no longer has the shock factor and it becomes just part of the 
daily discourse really and it again it's really really worrying obviously you can really depress yourself going into various microcosms of the internet and uh, and also obviously on twitter as well but i think when it's on the front pages of major newspapers when it is on a tv screen and this will probably feed into our point later when people don't have the energy the stamina and and or just the want to have to trawl through so much shit to find the facts in this brexit thing you can see why they gradually just begin to go along with it yeah and i think when we reach that point it's yeah it is deeply worrying and i think in in combination with you know what i think farage is very good at my concern is the country is ripe for those extreme views to propagate uh because you've got massive political division over over brexit it's it's a issue that's polarize the nation on top of all the other things which are being overlooked and not being addressed sort of massive stark levels of income inequality and what i worry about is before the referendum you had large swathes of the electorate that felt disenfranchised and that is one of the reasons why leave got over the line there has been nothing since then to restore anyone's faith in politics in fact you know, I I would describe myself as someone who I didn't think the system was ideal. I didn't think it was um, you know immune from criticism. But I generally had faith that politicians in the House of Commons were trying to do what they felt was best for the country. And you had debates over what that was and what was the best way of doing it. But that for me is gone. And so actually, even even on the Remain side, I think you don't have any kind of faith. In, 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 in the current political discourse. I'm not saying that Remain people are going to vote for the, for the, for the Brexit party, but, uh, I, I do worry that the overall environment in the country is, is, is ripe for someone to play on that antipathy that people currently have for mm. mainstream politics. And I think, I think the impact, if, if the Brexit party secure any su- success at all, its impact will be to, shift conservative party policy further towards the right that will be i think the, the tangible outcome of any success they achieve because i think those voting for the brexit party not entirely but will, ma- majority of those will have been what have been traditional conservative voters i would suggest so does that mean one of the largest parties becomes even more extreme? You know, the government has to become more extreme than it already perhaps is. How does that affect the Tory leadership election? Does that, you know, the will the ex- most extreme candidate win? It's, yeah, it's, it, it's concerning. And, uh, yeah, I think Farage has essentially booked himself a few more slots onto question time. Well, he's already the person who's got the most appearances. Is it this decade or this century? I can't remember. He's got more than anyone else. So. I think it's only Dimbleby that's beating him at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and going back to your point, George, if the needle moves further to the right for the Tories, do you think as a reflex reaction to that, the needle moves further to the left for the Labour Party as a counterpoint? I don't see the Labour... I think Corbyn has such a set ideology. I don't think he will change and be affected by it. What it might do is if the Tory party moves to the right and Labour Party stays where it is, the centre becomes even less less represented. There's a bigger gap there um, that needs filling and we need things to change for 
you know, I'll speak for myself, I consider myself to be a centrist of sort, that need that gap needs filling and we need to show we need to i need to receive some positive signs from the european elections that, that there is a, a viable alternative to the two largest parties i was going to raise the point earlier um david lammy's interview on ma yeah and just about e- extremism he will probably be completely ripped to shreds in the press tomorrow I'd imagine for 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 making how dare you how dare he make a comparison between the conservative party and 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 the nazi party but it's like like I said at the outset really you've got to make these comparisons because they're there it's not to say and, and the problem again with our discourse at the moment is you've got 0 to 100 you don't have anywhere on the sliding scale where there's there's nuanced debate is is able to be done and the problem with that is, it is a perfectly valid point that David Lammy made, uh, you know, about the kind of populism that we're currently seeing and it being uh, analogous to 1930s Germany. Does that mean that the Conservative Party are currently advocating rounding up Jews? No, it doesn't. But that's not the point. It, it, you can make the comparison, and it, it's a stupid, stupid place that we've got ourselves where any comparison with the Nazi party is immediately invalid because it's like the most extreme thing that the world has ever seen. It's like you, you have to learn the lessons of these things and you only learn the lessons by realising where the comparisons are, not by ignoring them. And they were, they were Nazis before they started killing anyone. Yes, yeah. So, as we approach, well, two months off, three years since the referendum, with no end in sight, does complete apathy uh, begin to wear people down? Are we at a point where people will just stop caring as the same buzzwords are used on the news, the same arguments are repeated over and over, the level of hate doesn't seem to die down at all. If anything, the divisions become deeper. Where do we feel things are going to go uh, in the next few months? I think anecdotally, I've discussed Brexit with a few people and a few people have said, I don't really care what happens now. I just want kind of shot of it and I just want MPs to get on with other things because, you know, I'm sort of, you know a sense of fatigue has kind of swept across certain corners of society. I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword, really. I'm glad that apathy is um, driving to some some people to kind of not caring what happens anymore, because that p- perhaps could lead to remain uh, remaining in the European Union as, as a more viable outcome if people are not as bothered. Although it's one of those things. Brexit is still the biggest issue of the day. It's the only issue. Yeah, exactly. Most other policies have some sort of connection to Brexit. You know, if you want more infrastructure in housing or, uh, you know, roads or uh, more investment in the military or anything like that, well, you know, the economic consequences of leaving the European Union will have an impact on that. It'll have an impact on how much the government's got to spend at each year's budget. So it does kind of infuriate me, I guess, in a sense that, you know, I'm sorry if you're slightly bored by the Brexit process. Go and do something else. 
go and watch a film then, you know, whilst you know the adults kind of continue continue with the process actually, because you know it's still a serious issue. Just because you might be bored of it, that's not a good enough reason to um, uh, abandon the whole thing together and not debate it through to the end, so we reach you know a, some sort of final conclusion. Um, I still think it's finely poised, and it's not the time. I think from both sides for their you know to to kind of lift their foot off the accelerator. Uh, I think it's important that we kind of resolve this properly and give appropriate airtime. There are other issues that need to be discussed by Brexit, but unfortunately, given that our integration, well, I mean, fortunately, given our integration with the EU affects so many corners of um, policy, this is something that we shouldn't just cast aside and we need to give appropriate attention to because at the end of the day politics is, is, is on the whole mostly about government spending the eu has a fairly fairly major part in, in whether we're still being a member or not i do think that the general attitude which is why don't we just get on with it or more more so actually i'm just fed up with hearing about this is a bit of a tacit admission that there isn't some kind of golden egg at the end. You know, there isn't anything to get excited about at the end. The concern is that it's become almost like a a level of fundamentalism that the the, the lack of a golden egg with some people won't matter. Uh, that you know, Brexit is is almost like a religious thing. Uh, we we believe in the concept of Brexit. What is it? I don't know, but I want it to happen. So I think. On on that in that regard, the the apathy will not turn those people off. But I do I do think there are plenty of people who, the more amount of time passes, will just get bored of it. The the and I I think that is subject to, you know, what we said about things like the Brexit Party. So you know there is a there's a opportunity in the European elections for these kind of fears and 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 concerns that were played upon in 2016 to be stoked up again but what we said at the outset the parliamentary arithmetic nothing has really changed beyond the european election period i think we'll go back to much the same old thing and people will get bored again so barring you know these opportunities for the likes of farage to to stoke up these kind of concerns which the, the platform that's needed for those are things like a European election. Uh, I do think you will get more and more people who are getting getting bored of it because it's been a really exhausting four or five months uh, to continue to pay attention to it. And I'm I'm reasonably hopeful that the longer it drags on, and if we do get an extension beyond October, which I think is, as you said, likely you will get more more people switching off. To that point where apathy, which I think we probably had conversations last year where we felt it was our enemy, actually could become you know, a really, really useful ally yeah. in this argument. As people do just sort of become disinterested. But it's when the language, when the actions kind of shift towards... I mean, obviously it doesn't look as though no deal is likely to happen now. Um, but for me, the the strand of apathy that I find most frustrating is a lot of people's, I don't know, general approach to it that it doesn't affect them in any way. <laughs> Whereas actually, you know, you look around at so many different industries and it's not just, 
the kind of the headline is obviously the tip of the iceberg, but it's what that does to a supply chain. So, for example, I was chatting to a friend yesterday who works for, um, I shan't name them, but a large German car manufacturer in their commercial fleet or commercial sector or commercial vehicle sector um, in terms of leasing and also underwriting kind of how many vehicles can be leased to various different um, franchisees of this company. Now, with Brexit being on the horizon, um, they've had conversations where it's likely that well, more redundancies will be made to their uh, their department. And that's as a result, obviously, of less um, cars being sold. Less cars are being sold because industries like construction have almost ground to a halt. There's no longer that kind of level of either interest or investment. And, you know, from one kind of singular point, various different industries begin to, to collapse. Also, close at home with the wine industry, Again, I probably have made this point before and will probably make it again. Um, the wine industry is intrinsically linked to hospitality. And you look at the kind of consequences of Brexit, um, obviously the hostile environment it's created for a lot of EU nationals. Now, I'm not saying there's been a complete exodus, but a significant number of people have left. Part of my job is unfortunately to go around, you know, cold calling a lot of places. Um, every single place... I've approached in the last fortnight has had a sign in the window advertising that they are short staff or they, you know staff wanted with experience. People are going, and again, it's just it's not something that's really widely reported. If people can't staff their establishments properly, um, the level of service drops down. If they're not, if the level of service drops down, the reputation goes down. The reputation goes down. Less people come. Less people come. They sell less wine, so it affects us. And I mean, devastatingly, you're seeing lots of closures. And this year will continue to be the year of the closure. You know, several seemingly, you know, unbreakable, unstoppable restaurant chains or particular outlets will fall on this sword. And that then, okay, don't get me wrong, it's a bit of wine. You know, it's not going to change the world so much, but it's just, it does act as this kind of proxy of a, a wider issue where, you know, so many of these things are so intricately woven together and I don't think people really give that the time of day a lot of the time yeah and I but I think I think this discussion actually has probably summed up the divergence that in a campaign people as we learned in 2016 can be persuaded to punch themselves in the face and then when they see the outcomes in reality it turns out punching yourself in the face isn't great. So I, I do, I do think we'll have a <laughs> shockingly. I, I do, th I do think we'll have a bit more of an upsurge in the. Oh yeah, we need to Brexit. You know, this is what we voted for: betrayal of democracy in the run-up to the European elections. And then I think the fact that nothing has changed, the fact that business uncertainty will just continue onwards. Um, there is no reason to suppose that economically, the UK is going to thrive in the intervening period with Brexit hanging over its head. The, the growth figures are anemic. And as long as those figures are low, there won't be good news. And you will have more of those stories, more of those business closures. And, and you know, whilst you say, you know, it's a bit of wine, these things are people's livelihoods. And, it, you know, 
it takes a couple of business to generate a newsworthy story and you get this overall in, uh, picture that this just isn't a good thing. So I think I think you'll get that juxtaposition again. It's okay though if you own a container ship or a fleet of container yeah. ships. You're absolutely quids in at the moment. Or, or if you're a business that doesn't own any ships. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. <laughs> I, my, my view is that, you know, these the issues around Brexit were heavily... I mean, the level of debate wasn't great around the referendum, but they were aired and debated during the campaign to some extent. Those issues haven't changed. Those issues are just as important then as they are today. So, you know, I have don't have much... I have a little empathy for those who feel um, like the Brexit process is just kind of passing them by and that are not so engaged in it and are bored of it. I have a little empathy, but I don't have loads because... I think it's still, you know, it's still there's still great importance, and, and the future of this country is going to be heavily affected by whatever outcome we have. And I, I think whether that's, you know, I don't know whose responsibility that, it, it, in terms of this growth and apathy, whose whose responsibility it is that? I'd like to think sort of people can take their own responsibility a little bit, but I think you know, politicians probably haven't been doing much for job themselves, but. We'll have to see, but I, I think apathy will, will grow, um, especially if both sides um, claim victories after the European election, which could happen very likely, I think. So we'll have to wait and see. Well, that's all for another instalment of the £1.92 Committee podcast. Thank you very much, George. Thank you very much, Aaron, uh, for your time, your excellent points this evening. And we'll look forward to doing it all again next time. Thank you.